Well, good morning. This is actually from Titus chapter 2. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to do good works. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why I love that passage. And uh, one of them is that the grace of God teaches us. It trains us. Uh, and it trains us toward godly living. It trains us toward um, a deeper sense of what our ultimate purpose in this life is about in regard to holiness, walking with God, and such. It also encourages us, obviously, to be looking as we live this way for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, there is a, a deep encouragement to live out lives that are producing good works and this kind of thing. Now, of course, we understand it's the grace of God by which we're ultimately redeemed and saved and upon which we stand and all that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, or I should say within that context, we understand that the encouragement is that our lives would therefore reflect that inward change and hence the uh, zealousness for good works, outward expressions of our faith. Now those of course serve a couple of purposes. Uh, one is that it becomes a reflection of what God has done inside of us and is continuing to do inside of us as uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit we're continually being sanctified or set apart. Um, however, and this is an important thing too, this is another reason why the scriptures in places like uh, Titus, James, um, Jesus speaks about this, Paul often speaks about this uh, throughout his letters as well, when he's speaking to the churches, the importance of that outward expression and living lives that uh, produce good works. Um, it's not about earning your salvation, but it does become a witness and a testimony to those outside. Now, in the first century, um, as the Christian church was beginning to um, grow and it was beginning to ultimately have impact in society, the, the, one of the primary ways it did was through its activities, through its behaviors and such, through its um, living out of its faith in terms of living out that outward change that has taken place that represents the inward change that God has wrought. And so when we talk about good works, uh, as I'd like to do just for a minute here today, as an encouragement, uh, I want to put it into a context that helps us understand the value of living out our Christian faith out loud. Now, if you're living in the West as I am, um, we have a lot of freedom to do that. I mean, there's criticisms, there's people that want to squelch the gospel and that kind of thing, but by and large, we're pretty free to live our faith out, whether it's going to church, whether it's talking about the gospel and sharing our faith with people in different circumstances. By and large, um, there's a lot of freedom for that. In the first century, however, there was not. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of you may have one of those ichthus bumper stickers on your car, the fish, um, you know, with the little uh, uh, open-ended tail and, and yeah, that kind of thing. Well, that ichthus actually has a history. Um, that, that picture of the fish was actually something that was sort of used as code in the first century uh, and maybe even beyond the first century, but certainly, certainly in uh, the early years of the church, if you thought you might be talking to a believer, standing next to a believer, and you wanted to know for sure, it became a practice where uh, one person would sort of, with their foot in the dirt, sort of draw the bottom half or the top half, one half of the ichthus, 
And if you were talking to a Christian, they would recognize that and they with their foot would then sort of, you know, dig out you know, or just kind of swoop their foot over and finish the fish kind of a thing. So you now have this little ichthus on the ground and then of course they'd wipe it out and uh, make sure no one saw it. But but they would know. And that became sort of a symbol of their of their shared faith and it became sort of the key to unlocking that opportunity to, to fellowship together and that kind of thing. That's the kind of conditions that they lived under in the first century and really for the first couple of centuries, uh, really until the time of Constantine where ultimately uh, the Christian faith became uh, uh, legalized. Um, it was illegal because it was not a sanctioned religion by Rome, both because it sort of fell under Judaism, although the the Jewish faith rejected it, um, and it also didn't bend the knee to Caesar. So the secular societies, or called secular and spiritual in terms of their uh, multiple deities and stuff, but uh, the Greek culture and Roman cultures and such ultimately uh, rejected it as well. So they were kind of a people unto themselves. And so they needed each other, and so they, you know, they found ways to meet together and to communicate with one another and those kinds of things. But they lived in that context of constant animosity. Um, and some of you live in a similar situation today, where sharing your faith may become, uh, it may be seen as a very dangerous thing to do. It might be considered even illegal based on where you might be watching this from. So when the Christian church was sharing its testimony, it was not only in word when they had opportunity, but oftentimes was through their activities, through their deeds. They lived exemplary lives. That's why Paul, for example, would talk about, like in Romans 13, the concept of, uh, of a Christian's life in view of a secular government and that kind of thing. Do we have to obey secular governments and those sorts of things? Well, you know, clearly the Holy Spirit tells us, yes, we do to some, I mean, there's a point at which we have to stand, like Peter said, you know, if it's right for, you know, to obey God or man, you decide. Uh, but as for us, we can't help but, uh, you know, speak about that, which we've seen and heard. And so there is a point at which the Bible would uh, permit civil disobedience. But by and large, the Christian faith is one that is intended to be lived out within the culture that it finds expression. And so here in the West, uh, we have our own sort of expression of that with the government by the people for the people. And so therefore we sort of approach Romans 13 or can with sort of a different nuance to it. But nonetheless, we still fall under the auspices of that, um, though it may find different expression here, as opposed to how it might in, in China or something like that. And so, uh, but we do seek to live out our faith in such a way that people recognize that there is something about us that reminds them of Jesus. And one of the ways that that happens is through our activities, through the good works we do. Jesus would speak about the good works that we do, ultimately, um, you know, bringing glory to our Father in Heaven. This is something that the world is intended to see, so they might glorify our Father in Heaven. It becomes part of our testimony, our witness. And so here, Paul encourages this kind of thing, not, not confusing it or blurring it with how we're saved, but rather describing what it looks like when we are saved. And so the encouragement is to live this way as a testimony while we wait for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is important for us to be living with our eyes lifted up to the heavens, looking for Christ to come for us, but at the same time, living out our lives in such a way as to let them be a living testimony to those around us. Now, the, the, the mention of, of awaiting our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, reminds us that Paul uh, was in his day, as we should be in our day, living in the regular anticipation of seeing the Lord. Now, I believe that the rapture is going to come, that we're going to see him come for his bride that way. 
And this is a great expectation that could take place at any moment. Uh, but even for those who have a different eschatology, where Jesus is just going to show up for the second coming and that kind of thing, there ought to still be some sense that it could be today, or it could be soon, and we want to be about his business. Of course, there's always the overarching possibility, the, the always pervasive uh, possibility that we could just breathe our last. I could stop paying attention to the road for a little bit, and all of a sudden, this is the last thing I ever do. Uh, and I go stand before the Lord. Of course, I'm going to pay attention because it's always important to drive by sight and not by faith. But uh, anyway, sorry about that. But anyway, so, but the idea of living out our lives with the intention of seeing him both motivates us to live for him, but also serves this beautiful secondary uh, um, uh, purpose of being a witness and testimony to those around. Now, Paul also talks about how grace teaches us how to do this. Grace teaches us to forsake um, unrighteous things and rather to pursue righteous things, uh, to live righteously and to put off unrighteous living in various forms, um, not to be given over to things that would compromise our faith personally or our testimony outwardly. These are important things, but they, they sort of, uh, not sort of, they very clearly def um, imply that there is a desire within us to approach our lives with this undergirding principle, that I want my life both to be an act of worship to God in response to his grace, but also to be an outward testimony that he can use as a trophy of grace to those on the outside. And so this 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 whole encouragement that, that this passage really got me thinking about is one of recognizing the days in which we're living and deciding how we want to live in them. Uh, now, there is a certain element in this that defines whether or not we are believers. If we're living in these days and we have no real sense uh, that it's important to live a kingdom lifestyle, one that pursues a deeper relationship with the king and seeks to invite people to the table, to the feast, as it were, if we don't think that's important, if that is, it is something that just doesn't matter to us, that should cause us some concern. Uh, whatever your life looks like, to have as a, a, a driving undercurrent uh, in our lives, the idea of pursuing him to know him better and living as he would ask us to in these days, uh, to be useful as a testimony, to not care about that thing, again, should be concerning. A believer who really understands grace, this is something else grace teaches us. If we truly understand grace, which requires us to understand a number of things, A, how undeserving of it we are, and also how far that grace has extended to save us and to uphold us and to undergird us and give us something to stand on in life, to, to, appreciate, to, to understand those things causes us to appreciate grace and certainly take advantage of it and, and experience it, but not take it for granted as though it were a light thing. Uh, understanding grace means understanding, again, how undeserving we are and how far it extended as God condescended to save us through his grace, through the finished work of Christ. And so if we do understand that, it becomes very natural for us to appreciate the giver of that grace. Um, God is the giver of grace. God is the supplier of grace. It is by his grace that we're saved and upon which we stand. And so therefore, if we've come to experience and know that, 
then it becomes once again, and, and I know I'm repeating myself, but this, this is so important, is that we truly come to appreciate what that grace is all about, and of course the giver of that grace. Our lives are given to us in Christ to be acts of worship. Um, lives that are lived out with Jesus at the center. Uh, it's not just about waiting to die and going to see him. It's about living for him today and experiencing his working in us and through us even today. It's not something that just has to wait until we take our last breath, but rather instead, when we live our lives daily for him, we walk with him, we experience him, we uh, come to know him more deeply, we see him working in our lives, it brings us great joy. It brings us uh, a sense of purpose and meaning that is anchored to our to the very reason why God made us and then saved us. Ultimately, to know Him and enjoy Him forever. And part of that means living with Him and for Him today. This is the great opportunity. I don't say these things as sort of like a mandate, command, like you better do this. That's a very, very shallow and, um, and, uh, and telling sort of view of these things. If that's our mindset, then, then we, we don't really know Him as well as we could. This becomes our great privilege to walk with the king here in this life, to be his subjects, his, his, his ambassadors, his emissaries, to be those that are here for such a time as this by the very hand and providence and purposes of God to ultimately glorify him and to be used by him that others might glorify him, both in coming to know him and then living for him as well. And so Paul is, you know, one interesting last thought on this, Paul is teaching this concept. He's sharing these ideas. I shouldn't say he's teaching like maybe he shared this with Titus previously too. He's reminding him. But in any case, he's sharing these things with Titus, who is a pastor in Crete, a place that is, if you read the letter to Titus, there's basically um, a view of, of uh, those who live in Crete. And it's where we get our word Cretans from. You know, people that are basically unrighteous and living unholy lives and kind of a poor moral character in this kind of thing. This is what they were saying about people in Crete. And so this, on the one hand, uh, put a big disadvantage on Christians because people had a generally bad view of those who were in Crete. But it also gave them a tremendous opportunity to be different and for their testimony to stand out in the midst of a society of Cretans, of a society that was generally viewed as being a very poor character and such. This opportunity is is something for us to consider in our day. There is, uh, and has been for a long time, certainly in the church growth movement, there has always been this element that we want to do things like the world does them so that we can attract the world to come and be part of the church. Sort of woo them in through some of the same kinds of things that they enjoy out there. And so we've sort of made our worship uh, kind of more rock and roll and loosey-goosey and all that kind of stuff. No one really says loosey-goosey anymore, you think? So, but anyway, but we sort of change our way of approaching God in church to line up more with the way things look out there in the world. Because we feel like if we're relatable to the world, then they'll listen to us and they'll come and they'll be part of, of, of what we're doing. That may work when it comes to just trying to fill seats in your building. But I don't really know, and I'm not sure you can convince anybody that it actually brings people to a Christ-centered, saving faith that God is at the center of. It has in many regards, I don't mean to get on a tangent, but I have seen in many regards 
or it brings a very man-centered kind of a, a draw to it, that kind of thing. But gospel living and gospel-centered teaching, living and, and fellowshipping and, and all of this, this is something that ultimately puts Jesus himself, the Jesus of the Bible, not sort of the rock and roll version that has sort of been manufactured in today's sort of Christian culture, but rather the one that the scriptures teach about, the one who is both holy and, and unapproachable, but yet fully approachable because he's made himself so. Somebody who is lofty and high and lifted up and exalted, and whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but yet will also eat with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and such. We don't change his character and diminish him and make him more like us. We recognize that somebody who is, though human in, in, in terms of the incarnation, yet fully divine in his deity, is somebody who has entered into our world and our sphere and our, uh, our place in order to elevate us, not to bring himself down, if I may. And so I say all that to say this, is that gospel-centered living means we're going to be different than the world. And you would be surprised how ultimately attractive that actually is. If the church is just like the world, then who needs it? You know, if you eventually get around to sharing the gospel, though you're not really going to talk about sin or any of that kind of thing, then you're not really sharing the gospel. You're not really reaching people for the sake of Christ. Instead, you're trying to fill a building. And I know that sounds a little bit blunt and harsh, but I, 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 I don't really think that's there's much to speak to that. The kingdom of God is about the king, not about us. Gospel-centered living is about him. And living that way means that we line up with what he lived like, and what he asks of us, and what the scriptures teach us. And so when we do that, and when he fuels that, and the Holy Spirit uh, drives us and inspires us to live that way and to live out the scripture and to, and to live out that that difference that we are. Remember Paul said that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, old things pass away, behold, all things become new and we become ambassadors from another place. That passage continues to say all the way up through verse 21. We become ambassadors from that place where God has changed us from and ultimately he sends us now out into a world that needs to ultimately hear this message of redemption and reconciliation. When we do that, we are, we are just going to be different than the world and we just have to be okay with that. We have to know that they're not going to like us and appreciate us. We have to know that we're not going to be relatable to them in that regard. We're not going to be just like them. Instead, we're going to be what God has made us, and they're going to realize that they need that. That they need Jesus to come and save them from what they are. Not just what they do, but what they are. And so, if they can see that we're different, they'll become different. And so, we are thankful for what grace does within us, ultimately that we stand upon, and ultimately what grace teaches us, as we seek to ultimately glorify uh, Christ through our changed lives, through our constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit, through the constant putting down of the flesh and all of its um, attractions and and uh, and, uh, and methodologies, all of these things really, and allowing Jesus to ultimately be the one who does the work, who shines through, who by the power of the Holy Spirit affects change continually in us and brings that change to new life uh, uh, into those who believe. And so. Anyway, just, just some thoughts that as I was reading this passage and just, you know, it, it's, 
this passage just really has, it just fits into something that the Lord has been just putting into my own heart and mind uh, over the last few years, honestly, as I just find myself so anticipating seeing him. And, and I just find myself recognizing that I really want to be handed over to him. I really want him to use me in these last days. I really want to be somebody that he can show himself strong on behalf of and shine through and use. And so passages like this continue to teach me of the importance of that. And it just, and to think through these things, to, to pray about them and to meditate in the truly biblical sense, not the weird new agey sense, but to truly consider and think through and mull over these ideas. And, and, and just to recognize again the importance of why Jesus said every day to take up our cross and follow after him. So anyway, just wanted to share that with you as I was kind of making my way to uh, actually meeting with some pastor friends. You know, we just kind of pray and share about just what God's doing and what we might pray about in our ministries, that kind of thing. Just uh, this was something I was thinking about you know, this morning in my devotional time as I was getting ready to get going here this morning. So I thought I would just share a few thoughts just as they were rolling through my mind there. So I know it was a little bit, wasn't a tight three-point sermon or anything, but hopefully there's some some thoughts there that are worth considering. So Father, we thank you and praise you for just your goodness toward us. We thank you that you saved us uh, through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he took all of our sin, past, present, and future, and has positionally moved us into a completely different place. Now we're sons and daughters, we're heirs, we're those who stand a to, to be with you and nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing will separate us from that, uh, that inheritance that is kept in heaven for those of us now who are kept by the power of God. And we know that uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you that you didn't just tweak us and make us a little bit better human beings, but you changed us from the inside out and made us new creations in Christ. We just pray that each day you would help us uh, by your grace to experience your grace and to live out our lives in your grace. We thank you that your grace is there to pick us up when we fall. We thank you that your grace is there to superabound where sin even abounds here. We thank you that your grace changes us as we learn to appreciate it more and more. And certainly as we do, we come to appreciate you and your love and your grace and your mercy toward us more and more. So Father, we just pray that you would take hold of our hearts and our lives and just cause us to desire to know you more, to desire to live lives that are a testimony of the grace that you've shown us. That, Father, when people look at us, they would each day see less and less of us and more and more of Jesus. So we thank you. We know this is a lot to ask, but it's not too much for you to do. So we just hand ourselves over to you, taking up our cross this day and every day and ask you to help us as we follow Jesus. So thank you, Lord. We love you and praise you and bless you and ask all this in Jesus' name.